We've been discovering together over the course of these past Lenten weeks some of the great characters that make up this amazing story with a special focus on the villains that are on the blacklist of history for the role that they played in the crucifixion of Jesus. And our goal, as you may have discovered by now, is not simply to shake our finger at them for all that they did wrong, but to discover something of our own story and their story, to open our hearts to the power of God, to the touch of God's Holy Spirit, to his forgiveness and his grace in ways that we also need. And I think it's safe to say that if there is any particular story or character in the Lenten uh, journey that is least likely in at least from some points of view, to find his name on the blacklist of Easter, it is the individual we know as Simon Peter. I think that if you had been watching the disciples of Jesus in the first century, if you had uh, had the opportunity to see them moving about as a band with Jesus, you would have found yourself particularly impressed by Simon Peter. He was, after all, somebody who was amongst the first to follow after Jesus, uh, to leave behind his nets and to respond to the invitation of Jesus to follow him. Uh, Peter was so often the one who would brashly and boldly make a case for Christ. He was the one who uh, seemed to exhibit the greatest kind of courage in following Jesus. He had a charisma about him that others no doubt admired. There was a natural leadership quality to him, an ability to speak publicly that set him apart in many people's eyes. And to round it all out, Simon also seems to have had an unusual insight into the ministry of Jesus. He seemed to understand before anybody else really did just who Jesus truly was. And we get a glimpse of this reality in one particularly famous encounter recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. And I want to invite you to uh, listen to these words. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? By the way, Caesarea Philippi uh, in that area is in the news today because Caesarea Philippi is located up in the northern part of Israel, very close to the Golan Heights. And, and Jesus is gathered with his disciples and he poses this question about who the people believe he is. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah the Methodist. Just seeing if you're listening. <laughs> Still others... Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, Why, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the one we've been waiting for. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I imagine Jesus pausing for a moment and smiling, and then replying, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. It's, the word is Petros. It means literally rock, rocky. You are rocky, Simon. That's what I'm going to call you from now on. 
And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And what you don't see in the storytelling is that where they were standing in Caesarea Philippi was beneath this gigantic rocky cliff. And I can imagine Jesus pointing to it as an indication of the kind of strength and power of the, this great building block of faith that Peter would be in the life of the church. It was an Instagram moment in Peter's life. It was an, an, a remarkable moment in which he no doubt was grinning from ear to ear, having been affirmed in this remarkable way by Jesus himself. I imagine Jesus smiling at Peter, beaming at this leading disciple, this remarkable man, what an undisputed hero Peter seems to be at this particular moment. He is the Rocky of the early church. And then the story goes on. Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must now go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, the people we've been also looking at in this Blacklist series. And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And hearing this, Peter took Jesus aside. You can imagine him just kind of putting his arm around him or grabbing his arm and saying, can, I come, can we come over here? Can we talk about this? And the scripture says that Peter began to rebuke Jesus. Never, Lord. Never, never, this shall never happen to you. And what Jesus then goes on to say in the face of this apparent devotion to his well-being consistently forces me to re-examine the definition of discipleship that I'm easy with most of the time. I don't think I would ever get to this by myself, honestly, were it not for this particular story. The Bible says that Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Are you feeling the whiplash of this whole encounter? I mean, one minute, Jesus is telling Peter that he is the building block of the church. And ten minutes later, Jesus is telling Peter that he is the stumbling block, literally the satanic obstacle that Jesus wants to avoid. He goes from A-list to blacklist just like this, just like this, from the one who is going to be a driver of the Christian move movement to one who is a potential obstacle to the Christian movement, and it just happens like this. Now, we will see this pattern repeat itself again in Peter's life. It won't be long before Jesus will be gathered with his disciples and uh, he will be talking again about the suffering that is coming his way. And by now, Peter's had a chance to rethink things. And he speaks up boldly, as you've heard him say it before. And he says, even if everybody else leaves you, everyone else clears out and abandons you, not me. 
Jesus, you can count on me. And in just a little while after that, he's standing in the courtyard outside the place where Jesus is being held. And and a servant girl looks at him and says, aren't you one of those Galileans? Aren't you one of the people that was with Jesus? And Peter denies even knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times, never even knew the guy. No, I was never with him. I don't know him. From building block to stumbling block, just like this. So what is going on here? How does does this kind of changeover happen in the life of Peter, and probably more um, to the point, and personally, how does it happen for you and me? How is it that so often in our lives, and I can't speak for your life, but I will recognize it in mine, that there are times when I'm just all in, I seem to get it, I'm for Jesus, and then some other circumstance, a little bit more pressure comes my way, and suddenly, I'm, I'm backpedaling, I'm, I, I, I'm no longer so in it, maybe I'm actually even a stumbling block to the cause of Christ, uh, because of my fear, my, my selfishness, my anger, uh, my ignorance, How does this go on? How do you and I become these stumblers like Simon Peter so clearly is in this story? The turning point, I think, has to do with what may be the most challenging words that Jesus ever spoke to anybody that would be a follower of his. Uh, The passage from Matthew 16 that we're studying today ends with these particular words. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I quote, If anyone would come after me, if any of you are interested in following me, he's saying, then he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. Now, few words that Jesus ever spoke are more difficult than these. I think that we'd have to say these are maybe the toughest things that ever came out of the mouth of Jesus. There are so many other invitations that Jesus issues that are far more easy to take in. Uh, When Jesus says, come dine with me, as he frequently does, invites people to join him for meals. Uh, When he invites us to to come and experience the fulfillment that he wants to give us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. When he says that sort of thing and invites us in that way, we're all in. We're eager to be part of that table. When Christ says, come do life with me, come experience the difference that my companionship Uh, will make in your life. Please come walk with me through life. Many of us are naturally intrigued. We'd like to try that. We're willing to take some initial steps to go after him. And when Jesus says, in effect, other times, come dance with me, come experience my joy. I want my joy to be in you. I've said these things that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be complete. We say, okay, Jesus, I'm up for joy. Sign me up. What do I need to do next? But when Jesus says what he does here, when he invites us to come die with him, to come experience my death, 
Jesus is saying, to come take up a cross with me, then there is something in almost all of us who is thinking about it anyway, who tends to respond, never, Lord. No, not that. That's not what I signed up for. And this is only natural. I want to suggest to you, actually, you need to get to that place where you face that particular emotion in yourself. It's the first important stage of following is to recognize how hard it is to follow. And we come by this honestly, I think, most of us. From the very earliest moment of our lives, almost as soon as we emerge from the womb, from the very cradle on, we're always being taught that the goal of life is to preserve it. Right? That's what we're being taught. From the time that, that mom or dad straps us into the car seat to the day that we're lying in a hospital room with tubes going into our body, the continual message is preserve, protect, sustain, secure this life. It's not simply the maintenance of life that we are about here in America. We're about the maximization of life. And from every single point of the compass, the message comes at us that the quality of our life is something we must jealously guard, we must seek to build up, we must work at enhancing it. Our life will become defined over time by all the ways we've been successful at preserving it and building it up. By the titles and the trophies that we've earned, by the, the pleasures and the privileges that we are enjoying, by the sheepskins or the shape of our skin, or by the castles or the coins of our life. This is life. This is the goal of life. Not even just maintenance, it's maximizing. This is what we're so often taught. And then along comes Jesus. And, and he seems so strangely out of step with this idea at times. He sometimes tells us that we have defined the concept of life too superficially, that we have been too selfish or stupid or ignorant about the way we've looked at life. He looks right into our eyes as he did into the eyes of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in his day, and he says... You've not been such a good steward of this vineyard I've given you. I want you to rethink this. I want you to rethink the meaning of life. Other times Jesus will, will come at us in the way he came at Caiaphas. And, and he will not fit neatly into the little box that we have tried to constrain our God or our understanding of salvation. And it will be very disruptive to us. Or he will force us as he did force Herod to look at all of the ways that we have compromised in order to maintain our image, in order to keep our seat on the throne. And Jesus will challenge these things. And if we're truly hearing Jesus, if we're really paying attention, then we will rightly recognize that the coming of Jesus requires somebody's death. Somebody's going to have to die here. If we're going to follow Jesus through the gate, the narrow gate, 
into the kingdom, if we're to be born anew into the full life of God, then the way we've been taught to define our present life, the way we've naturally come at doing life in America today, or the life or self that we have settled for, this has to die. It has to be lost. It has to be named. It actually has to be crucified in order that the larger life of Jesus might come forth in us. This is the core of the Christian message, really. This is the hard thing about the Christian message that makes it clear why maybe it isn't so popular to so many people when they really understand it. It is painful to die to self. Uh, I know that full well myself. It will demand something of the profound humility, the courageous perseverance we see when we watch Jesus carrying that cross all the way through the streets of Jerusalem and up that hill to Calvary. That's what our journey is going to look like if we follow him. It will mean periods of terrible thirsting. Remember how Jesus cries out on the, the cross, I thirst. There will be times in our Christian experience when we're thirsting after what we used to depend upon to slake our thirst for satisfaction in this world. It will mean times when we feel though we are doing the faithful thing, we are utterly forsaken by God. My God, where have you gone? Why have you forsaken me? Following Jesus will put us in places of temporary vulnerability before the soldiers and the mocking crowds of this world. In the past, we would have been fine. We would have fought back. We would have had no trouble handling all of those ob obstacles and those opponents in our life. But to follow Jesus means to do what he does, which is to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. And that is hard painfully hard to follow after Jesus will require a daily commitment of our spirit into the hands of the heavenly father as Jesus made that commitment it will mean cleaving hard to our new family uh, when some of our old family abandon us or, or think we're crazy for following after Jesus, it will mean living into the new family of faith the way Jesus formed John and Mary together as this new kind of family. To follow Jesus means a trusting obedience until God's work in us and through us is finally completed and we can say with Christ, as we will one day when we stand in glory, it is finished. This work is finished. He does the ultimate work on the cross. But we too must walk in his way. He has left us an example, says St. Peter, in a moment of enlightenment later on, that we should follow in his steps. George MacDonald uh, was a marvelous preacher of an earlier era in Scotland, and he once wrote these words. It is crucial that we understand that Christ died to save us, not from suffering, but from ourselves. Not from justice, far less from, uh, not from injustice, far less from justice, but from being unjust ourselves. He died that we might live, but live as he lives, 
by dying as he died, who died to himself that he might live unto God. For if we do not die to ourselves, writes MacDonald, we cannot live to God. And he that does not live to God is dead, though they may not know it. During the Lenten season, we are normally accustomed to focusing on the death that that Palm Sunday crowd eventually demanded of Jesus. The big, the big focus of Lent is all about Jesus and what he does upon the cross. But it is equally crucial that we remember the death to which Christ himself calls us. Again, it's not as hard a job as Jesus took. He paid it all. But it is to a serious and significant kind of personal death that Jesus also calls you and me in the journey of faith. Uh, it is the path, however, to a life that we could never get any other way. It is the path to a greater communion with God in Christ. It is the road to an eternal kind of peace and prosperity. It is the only way to gain an unshakable faith, an unconquerable hope, a life-changing love that is more precious than anything that the crowds are chasing after today. But this is what Christ makes so very clear to us. This life does not come from simply wearing a cross. It comes from bearing a cross. And somebody, some life, has to die. No wonder some of us want to say, never, Lord. I've been in it so far. I like lots of pieces of what you're asking for, but not that, Lord, never, never. I don't like this path that you're talking about. You know, I understand that in my own life. I understand why Simon Peter didn't want to even hear Jesus talk about suffering and death and the cross. I, I can see why. I understand, understand why when push came to shove when Simon Peter was there in that courtyard, he denied even knowing Jesus on the possibility that even admitting that would lead him to have to go to a cross. I don't want to die to my own personal selfishness. When my wife points it out to me, I didn't know that was going to be part of the deal when I got married. When we had those beautiful little children that just looked up in adoration at daddy, I did not know they would grow up to point out my faults. I did not realize that this woman, these kids, would be so accurate, so painfully aware of my failings and my foibles. I don't like it when my coworkers call me out on inconsistencies in my behavior. I don't want to die to those well-grooved addictions and indulgences and carefully coddled compulsions that keep me actually from being more available to God and 
better of use to his purposes. And like Simon Peter, there's a big part of me that just wants to take those parts of the biblical uh, Jesus that I like, the ones that reinforce my lifestyle or that affirm the values that I find it easier to live by, that keep my ambitions moving. These things that leave me feeling spiritual, I like these things, but I don't want to pay too much of a cost. I would like to wear a cross as jewelry. I do not want to bear a cross as a disciple. I would like to go on with life and preserve the self that I have. I feel like it's pretty good, this self. Until I get to those moments when I realize it isn't. Until I get to those moments when I realize there are still things about me I hate. Contradictions, inconsistencies, failings, stubborn sins. Until I stand in the presence of people that are living with a beauty and a goodness that I know is what God would want for me. I don't want to die until I see someone who is willing to lay down their life for the greater kind of life until I meet someone like Jesus or like Arlen D. Williams, Jr. Do any of you know that name, Arlen D. Williams, Jr.? If you have lived or spent time in the Washington, D.C. area, that name may ring a bell for you. There is actually a bridge that is named after that particular individual. And, and that bridge crosses over the Potomac River, and I was staying just a few blocks away from that particular location way back in January of 1982. And on the 13th of that month, there was an airplane, actually an Air Florida flight that took off from the uh, international airport nearby. Its wings iced up, and moments after takeoff, it crashed, a horrible crash right into the Potomac River. I remember hearing from my apartment this sound of the emergency vehicles. I turned on the television set. I was glued, as so many Americans were on that particular day, to the uh, rescue attempts that were being made to save the remarkable few survivors that were there in those frigid waters as the hypothermia a threat closed in and would result in the death of some of them. And one of those survivors in the water, one of those people that somehow survived the impact of the crash was Arlen D. Williams, Jr. He was a 46-year-old employee of the United States Federal Reserve, and as the Washington Post recounts it, this is what happened. Five different times, a helicopter dropped a rope right down to Arlen D. Williams, Jr. to save him. Five times. And five times, Williams took hold of the rope and passed it to someone else who he felt needed it even more. And when the rope was extended to Williams, the sixth time, he could no longer take hold. 
and he succumbed to those frigid waters. The Washington Post article said his heroism was not rash. Aware that his own strength was fading, Williams deliberately handed hope to someone else. Again, and again, and again, and again, and again, Williams chose to die to self. Fought not just the maintenance or the maximizing instinct of life, but that terrible fear of losing life altogether so that somebody else might live. And in the most difficult of circumstances, he made this choice to die to self and in so doing not only saved other lives, but became a glorious witness to a love that never dies, to the kind of life that never truly dies. Brothers and sisters, there is a bridge that stands at a place where someone else once made some very deliberate choices. No one takes my life from me, said Jesus. It's not like I don't have a rope, Jesus was saying. It's not like I can't get out of this. No one takes my life from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. A short while later, later, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And I tell you the truth. It works like this, says Jesus. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and, and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it can produce many, many seeds. I tell you, the man who loves his life, said Jesus, will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. For whoever serves me must follow me. Whoever really serves me must imitate me, must do as, as I do and have done. My friends, the purpose of the whole Lenten season is to ponder afresh than when, that when he might so easily have done otherwise, Jesus chose to take up his cross to pay the ultimate price for human sin that you and I might be forgiven and might live forever with God. When he could have saved his own life, Jesus chose instead to pass to you and to me the rope of salvation. That's what Jesus did. And if you have never taken hold of that rope before, please do so today. He is extending it to you. Salvation, forgiveness, eternal life, available now to you. Grab hold of that. Let Jesus pull you to safety just know that he wants to wrap you up now in the blanket of his family that you might be well. But if you have ever taken hold of that rope 
And even if you do that for the first time today, don't let it stop there. Don't let the cross be merely a symbol of the life that Jesus had or the life that you'll have in heaven. Let it be a signpost to the life that Christ is calling you to here in this world. Cross over the bridge that Simon Peter ultimately did and into the larger life of the kingdom of God. Even if you have stumbled recently, like Peter has, unwilling to face the cross, unwilling to die to self, even if you've messed up badly, take the hand of Jesus. He's lifting you up today. He's giving you a new start, a new beginning. It can start right now. Face the selfishness or the sin that is keeping you from becoming the larger person that God knows you can be. Die to the compulsion or to the distractions or the resentments that stand between you and the freedom that God wants you to have in this life. Make some difficult choices this week to do the kind of thing Jesus would do. Pass the rope to somebody else when you want to slap them with it. Follow in his steps. For if you would come after me, said Jesus, then you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And as you ponder that invitation, please remember that the end of the path he's calling you to walk on isn't actually death of the worst kind. It is the Easter life to which he is inviting you. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we marvel in the mystery that this journey you call us upon that is so hard, that demands so much, also brings so much. Help us, Lord God, step by step to follow after you and in following, discover the glory of the life for which we've been made. For this we pray in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.